in the earliest days of the church, when the Christians were still meeting secretly in house churches, huddled together, there was a long process before a convert could be baptized as a Christian, often up to years, three years. And the reason for this is because the early church knew that if a Christian weren't formed and trained with deep roots in the faith, when the time of persecution came, that person would not be able to withstand it. That long process was called catechesis. It's related to the word maybe you grew up knowing about called catechism. Catechesis is this long process of the training and instruction and formation of a Christian. What I find interesting is that the word echo and the word catechesis share the same Greek roots. You can sort of see it there in the middle of the word. In one sense, the job of a Christian is to be able to hear the truths of the faith and echo them and speak them out to somebody else. And in fact, I think the more faithful we are at echoing the truths the church is passing down to us, the more Christ-like we are and the more God can use us in the world. For the next several months, I'd like to walk through some of the basics of the faith. See, one of my theories is that in American Christianity, we've moved away from an idea of catechesis, the idea that a Christian needs to be trained and formed. It's not enough to be born again, as you might have heard somebody say. You also have to grow up. Often in our churches, we, we tend to think that, that, that all we need is just to come to Christ and not just grow in Christ. And that's why, perhaps you haven't been in church in a long time, that's why you've seen people who claim to be Christians but are just as racist and just as greedy and just as fearful as they were before they came to Christ. But God isn't through with us yet. In fact, I think that God's purpose for us is for us to be conformed in the image of his son so that over time through the power of the spirit we're less greedy and more generous <clears throat> we're less racist and more about reconciliation we're less fearful and more courageous ready to speak up for what's right and I think it's time for us to go back into the deep roots of the faith and to be formed and shaped into this great message the church is preaching to us so I want to look for the next couple of months at something called the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is like a summary of the faith, like a syllabus. It has really ancient roots all the way back to the mid part of the second century in Rome. It's very old. It's not everything one needs to know about the faith, but it's like the foul lines. You know what the boundaries of the faith are. And Christians can disagree with different matters within the foul lines, but we know these are our boundaries. And so I want to look at that. But what's interesting to me and what I've been thinking about this week is, why was it that the early church faced persecution? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, why particularly? Why was Christianity illegal? Why did Caesar consider the Christians to be dangerous? Listen, if you were to go to North Park Mall and take a poll of just the average person walking around the mall and you said, what do you think of the church? They'd say, I'm imagining many people would say, well, it's irrelevant it's boring. Maybe some people would say, well, it's corrupt. It's out of touch. It's always behind the times. Some people might say, well, it's greedy. It's homophobic. There's all kinds of ideas out there in our culture about the church. But you know what I doubt they would say? I doubt they would say the church is dangerous. In fact, the only people I know in our culture who talk about the church being dangerous are people who are well-known as atheists, like the late Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens may have said, the church is dangerous. But nobody else thinks that. In fact, for the most people going to coffee right now down the street or just waking up or reading their paper or taking their dogs for a walk, the last thing in their mind is that the church is dangerous. It's irrelevant, probably. 
but not dangerous. But here's what I want to tell you. I think Caesar was exactly right. I think the church is dangerous. In fact, the early church leaders, all of whom that we know about, were eventually thrown in prison and, and executed because of their commitment to Christ. In fact, there was a man named the Apostle Paul, a great missionary of the faith. He started churches all around the Mediterranean Sea. <coughs> the Apostle Paul was thrown in prison in Rome and we believe eventually executed there. And while he was in Rome, he wrote a letter while he was in prison back to a church he had started in a Greek city called Philippi. We know it in our Bible as the letter to the Philippians. People who live in Philippi are Philippians. Paul had been there several years previously, started a church. And now Paul, in Rome, arrested, because after all, the gospel is dangerous. While he is in chains, he's writing a letter off to the Philippians. And I want to look at it today, and here's what I want to say. I believe that what we're going to look at today, as well as the second line of the Apostles' Creed, we believe in Jesus Christ God's only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, as it says it in the traditional language. I believe that that phrase in this passage from Philippians is something that ought to mess us up. It's explosive, in fact. And it's certainly very dangerous. Here we are. This is Philippians chapter 2, a very famous passage. In fact, Almost all Bible scholars think that this passage is not Paul's writing, but Paul quoting of a hymn. We just sang the song, Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is Calling. What Paul was doing here in his second chapter to his letter to the Philippians, he's really just quoting a song that they would have known, a very famous ancient hymn. Here's what it is. Have this mindset among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in essence God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. But he emptied himself, taking the essence of a slave, having become in human likeness, and being found in human appearance, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him and gave to him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and upon earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." May God add his richest blessings to the reading and hearing of this word. Let's pray. Lord, take my words this morning and speak through them. Take our thoughts, Lord, and think through them and take our hearts and set them on fire for you and ready to be poured out and emptied for your world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. The line of the creed is, we believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I think that's an explosive claim, and it's dangerous. And in fact, Caesar was right. If this message isn't suppressed and kept down and the leaders aren't thrown in prison, something's going to happen. And I'd like to walk through this morning some reasons why I think this is a very dangerous and explosive claim. The first is this. <clears throat> the church's claim about who Jesus is is explosive and dangerous. Did you catch what the Apostle Paul says? He says to the Philippians, have the same mindset that was in Christ Jesus. Who being in essence God, who being of the same essence of God, the same nature of God, did not consider that equality something to be used to his own advantage. Who being in essence God. 
Several weeks ago, we talked about the first line of the creed. The first line of the creed is this. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Many people would agree with that claim. In fact, people who don't go to church would probably agree with that claim. It's not a radical idea to think of a creator God who made all things. Most people seem to agree with that. But you notice that's just the first part of the creed. And it's not what makes us Christians to believe in a creator God. What makes us Christians, in fact, is the next line. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. What makes us Christians are those simple letters, C-H-R-I-S-T, about Christ. We're not called Godians, Creatorians, some other sort of adjective. We're Christians. Why is that? Because what the church says about Jesus is a particular message. Now listen, I believe that Jesus is the most brilliant teacher who's ever lived. I, I think the more you study the Gospels, the more you, your mind is illuminated at his piercing insight about what it means to be human. I don't think you'll find a better teacher or more persuasive preacher. You're not going to find a better leader in all of human history. This one man, a poor Galilean carpenter, who was murdered by the Roman Empire, set in motion a movement that accounts for our presence here today. You're not going to find a better or more powerful or more brilliant human being than Jesus of Nazareth. I believe that. But notice the church's claim about Jesus is not that he's merely a good teacher, though of course he is. It's something startling and explosive. And maybe, see, maybe you're like me, you've been in church too long and you miss some of these claims. What the church says about Jesus of Nazareth is in fact, he's the Christ, the Messiah. In fact, he is God himself. That's a crazy claim. It is the claims about Christ that sets the church apart from what Muslims or Buddhists or Hindus or Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses or other people outside the faith. It's that claim about Christ which makes Christians unique. And it's a startling claim. Our minds become numb sometimes, particularly in a culture like this where we, most of us have at least been to church at some point in our lives. Our minds become numb to some of these claims about Christ. What would it take to convince you that somebody you knew down the street, a local carpenter, was in fact God incarnate in the flesh? I have to tell you something. It would take something very important and very unexpected to convince me of that claim. And yet that is precisely the claim of the early Christians. We knew this man, we talked to him, we saw him crucified, and then we saw him risen again. And the only possible explanation is in fact that what he said was true. He wasn't just a great teacher, he was God himself. The incarnation is the fancy Christian word for God putting on flesh, just as you order carne tacos at a Mexican food restaurant, incarnation, flesh, meat on the bones. We talk about it at Christmas Eve, but it is a startling, crazy claim. In fact, it's a dangerous claim. And even today, people get killed by that claim. See, in our world, it's just like the ancient Roman world. You can worship whatever you want. We're a very tolerant society. As long as you don't make any claims that seem crazy or unrealistic. See, in Rome, there's all kinds of uh, different religions. In fact, the Roman Empire filled out the Mediterranean world, all different sorts of people. And if the Christians had just kind of kept to themselves and made their own claims, but then also decided to do their own sacrifices to Caesar, there would have been no problem. 
But the Christians said, no, 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 no. We can't worship Caesar because Christ is God. Jesus Christ is our Lord. What a claim. It's a dangerous claim. In fact, I suggest it is just as dangerous now in 2012 right here in Dallas as it was in A.D. 40 in Rome. And Paul was reminding the Philippians of the message he had preached to them, that Christ Jesus, who is in the same essence of God, is the one that came and knelt and blessed bread and was ultimately crucified. That's a dangerous claim. I wonder today where you are with that claim. Does that claim seem outrageous to you? In fact, it probably should. In fact, if, if, if you and I accept that claim just without thinking through it and working out the implications, we're probably not being faithful. Does that claim seem offensive to you? It is offensive. That's why the early Christians were martyred. That's why Christ was crucified. Jesus didn't get in any trouble when he started preaching about love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus didn't get in any trouble when he said things like store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus didn't get in trouble with those things. You know what got Christ crucified? Was his claims to divinity. He said, listen, if you destroy this, I'm going to raise it up in three days. And the people wanted to murder him. This is an explosive claim. And Paul would know it better than anybody else because, of course, Paul is writing from prison, being arrested for making this claim. So the first reason I think Caesar was right to consider this dangerous is because what the message of the church says about who Jesus of Nazareth is. He's the Christ, the Messiah, in fact, God himself in the flesh. But even that, I don't think, is the whole picture. It goes further than that. It's not about who Christ is, but what he did that is so dangerous and explosive if it really begins to work in your heart and work through the fabric of a culture. Here's what Paul says. Let's go back to Philippians. Have the same mindset among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in essence God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage, but he emptied himself, taking the essence of a slave having become in human likeness, he emptied himself. The contrast between the Lord of the universe and any human is like the difference between me and a slug. It's huge. And notice that, of course, when Christ came, he didn't come as a king or a lord. See, if you were writing the story, that's what you would have said. You would have said there's this great hero king whom everyone recognizes at once as God himself. If you were writing the story, that's what you would have written. No one would write when God comes, when the Messiah comes, when the Savior comes. He comes born in some out-of-the-way stable in some back cultural backwater in the Middle East in the year 83 or whenever it was. And you wouldn't have had him be a carpenter. You would have had him been a senator from an important family. But according to the message of the faith and of the church, the same one whom we'll read later, whose name is above all names, is the one who emptied himself and took the form of a slave, the very lowest possible person. See, for a long time, at times, the church has made mistakes, I believe, by trying to appear triumphalist 
powerful, in control, trying to force people to believe. A great example is the Crusades. A lot of us are, are shamed by the church's action in the Crusades or a more, at least geographically close example is what the church did with the Indians in North and South America when they first came. Of course, there were some very godly people who loved them and poured out their lives for them. There was other people who tried to use might and strength and power and coercion to get the message of the cross out. What would it look like, though, if the church reclaimed this message of emptying ourselves? What would that look like? <clears throat> this is a Methodist church, and in the Methodist church, we have what we call bishops. Bishops are just like um, administrators, overseers over our churches, almost like pastor, the pastor to pastors. And we have a bishop here, and once I was talking to the bishop's right-hand man, like his <clears throat> chief of staff, assistant, and he said... Um, I've never forgotten this. He's <clears throat> a real godly man. The assistant to the bishop said, when I asked him, what do you do? He said, my job is to let people know that they're important. That's my job, to let people know that they're important when they come to see the bishop, whether they're able to speak to him or not. My job is to make them know they're important. And then he said, I don't say make them feel important. I mean to let them know they are important. I've never forgotten that. I thought, what a lovely way to think about power, which is, it's not about them letting, knowing that we're important, but rather my job is to make them know that they're important. What would it look like in our culture if, if the church steps, stopped saying, you come to us on our terms and we said, we're going to go to you exactly where you are? <clears throat> All kinds of headlines this week in the news about Islam and this video and violence and raises lots of interesting and and really important questions. But I suspect that if you went to many places in the Muslim world, they would not have the idea that Christians are people who empty themselves out for others. And I suspect that if the church began to be known like that in Cairo, or in Tripoli, or in Senna, or in any of these other cities, I suspect the message of the gospel would take root and begin to flourish there. In fact, can I just ask you, what might it be that God is calling you to pour out yourself for? Can you see how marriages would be different if we had this kind of mindset? Rather than the marriage <coughs> being about meeting my needs, what if marriage was a place where you could pour out yourself for the other? Listen, I think most of our cultural answers to the important questions are wrong in basically every way. And I think we're reaping what we're sowing. And the reason there's so much brokenness and pain and betrayal and depression and anxiety in our culture is because we're believing in the wrong things for answers. And yet I'd suspect that the way to change the culture is not to shout it out that they're wrong, but to live among people who are making the very mistakes that God has called them not to make and to pour out our lives on their behalf. I think this is an explosive claim. We believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord, who emptied himself, taking the form and essence of a slave as low as possible. With that kind of God who does those things, there is no place for arrogance or triumphalism or coercion. There's a place for sacrifice, for pouring yourself out. And you can see 
why the message of the church is unstoppable when we're faithful to what's been handed down to us. You know, the Christians were just a few folks in the Roman Empire huddled together in these secret house churches. But what some historians say, what really made the difference, what caused there to be a tipping point in the culture to where ultimately the empire became Christian, was what happened in several plagues. There was diseases in the ancient world, of course, as there were today. And in the ancient world, when the plagues would come, families would abandon their family members to the disease. The rich would pull out of the cities and move away to sequester themselves in isolation. And it was the Christians who stayed and cared for not just their own dead, but the dead of others. It was the Christians who stayed in places in which they knew they would die, but they stayed anyway. That kind of witness is unstoppable. Just bring it close to home. What would it look like if the people who gather here on Sunday mornings realize that we're worshiping not just the creator God of the universe, almighty, victorious, which is true, but also the same God who put on flesh and took the form of a slave being found in human likeness. What would it look like in this neighborhood, in our jobs, in our families, in our schools, if that was the God we are worshiping? I told you, it's explosive stuff. It's dangerous stuff. But you know, finally, the reason this is dangerous is not just because the claim it makes about God, not just the claim it makes about Christ, although that's explosive. The reason it was dangerous to the Caesar and all Caesars in all times is not just because of that. It's not just because the Christians said, well, if Christ is Lord, then Caesar isn't. It's not just because of what they said that this God was like, that this Lord was like, a one who emptied himself. The reason it's particularly dangerous, I believe, is because of this very first line of the passage here. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says this. Have the same mindset among yourselves that was in Christ Jesus. Have the same mindset among yourselves. We don't just worship a God and tell stories about a God who was born of the Virgin Mary, in an out-of-the-way stable, who suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified, dead, and buried. We don't just talk about that God. The church is some way, somehow, to embody the very message of that God. The very good news, the gospel, which just means good news. The church's job is to be the body of Christ, which is a word we use in the church. And that's explosive stuff. See, that means, regardless of what the Caesars of the world's claim, regardless of when Caesar says, you need to bow down and worship me, the Christians will say, we can't. There's only one Lord. We're worshiping him. And when somebody says, hey, it's not that big of a deal, just, just worship both things, the Christian says, we can't. We have a Lord who has an all-consuming call on our lives. And when it becomes to be a place of persecution or difficulty, when the cost becomes very high, the Christians say, we're going to pay it. We're going to empty ourselves on behalf of people who are nothing like us. We're going to demonstrate love towards people who are not worthy of it. Because after all, that's what our Lord and Savior has done. That's explosive stuff. That changes how you think about your money, right? 
according to Paul, the way you should think about your money is the way Christ thought about the riches of glory, which is to use them on behalf of others. What would it look like when you sat down this week <coughs> and you looked at your online bank account or you got your paycheck or looked in your checkbook and you said, okay, God, you've blessed me in these ways. How can I use my blessings for the blessings of the world? What would it look at this week, <clears throat> tomorrow when you go to work, if you, if you said, okay, Christ, who is in the same essence of God, did not consider equality with God, his great position as something to be used for his own advantage, but emptied himself, what would that kind of behavior look like for me in this business deal? When I'm having this employee meeting, when I'm making my sales call. I don't know what it is, but I bet it'd be different than the way most of the world operates. But let's be very clear. I am not talking about being a doormat for the world. Jesus gave himself away. Judas threw himself away. In fact, one of the teachings of the church and why catechesis is so important is we need to be taught what are the ways of giving ourselves away that lead to life and what are the ways that just lead to more death. Not all dying to self or in real life is a good thing. What might it look like, though? That's what the church has to teach. That's why the teaching of Jesus is so important because Christ teaches us what life looks like. In fact, he says, what does it profit someone if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul when, with regard to possessions? That's an important lesson. But the reason this is so explosive and powerful is because of what God does with sacrifice and humility. The message of the creed and of this passage does not end where it says Christ was crucified. The creed doesn't end, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, Amen. There's another line. Philippians doesn't end when Paul says, and he humbled himself, taking the form of a slave, and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's like the intermission, the pause, the midpoint, the halftime. The rest of the verse says that, and therefore God has exalted him to a place of honor above every name. And the rest of the creed says, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. The reason this is so explosive is because people who give their lives away for the sake of the gospel gain it back. It is unstoppable. No government, no law, no persecution, no cross can stop that pow that, the power of self-giving, self-emptying love. So before you think I'm talking about becoming a doormat for others, having a great idea but letting the world roll over you. I'm talking about the exact opposite. I'm talking about embracing the only true power in the universe, a power that gives itself away for the sake of others. That's unstoppable. And it means that regardless of what happens in your life, God will ultimately be vindicated through you. See, <clears throat> Caesar was right. This is an explosive claim. And the one who pulled himself out, who emptied himself for the sake of others, he's the one now whose name is above every name. And one day the ending is sure 
At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. So the challenge I'd like to put to you today is, will you embrace this self-emptying, self-giving love, this unstoppable power, and let God work in your life in that way? Or will you just turn your back on it? This claim the Christian church makes about Jesus, it can infuriate us, it can scare us, it can lead us to worship, but it shouldn't lead us to indifference. And that's a question you can only answer for yourself. But I'll tell you this, the same one who poured himself up for us pours out the Holy Spirit on you and me now to strengthen us as we take these difficult steps. And my prayer for you and for me is that in the act of self-giving, we'll gain back all we gave and more. Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? But then he goes on to say, but those who give their lives for my sake and the sake of the gospel will gain it all back. And that's what I want for you and for me. And here's how I want to end our sermon today. I'd like to invite you to stand up. And I realize today we're all over the map. We believe different things. We're not sure about all the claims of the faith. Perhaps I've really upset you today. But this is the message of the church. It's not just about you or me. And when we recite the words of the Apostles' Creed, we're saying what Christians have been saying for centuries. And maybe as you're saying it, you could pray, God, I don't know even if I believe it. Help mine unbelief. So let's recite the creed together. Church, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. God, those are huge claims. <laughs> I've been in church my whole life. I've been to seminary, Lord, and I gotta tell you, I don't understand most of that. I'm troubled by it. I'm scared by it. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's the prayer I have for these precious men and women who are here today. Lord, take this explosive claim of Christ and who he is and what he does and what he calls us to and let it work like dynamite in our lives, Lord. But as things are blown up, Lord, put them back together in a way that honors you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're asking this. Amen.